Welcome, everyone, to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 158. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at BJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Doing great. Greetings from a very cold Fort Worth, Texas. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Awesome, Nick. Hey, so uh, today is the start of a new series of interviews. Um, and I don't remember who we're interviewing. Remind me again. Andy Sirwich. Yes, Andy. This is going to be our standard two-parter, right? Actually, John, this is a trilogy. Oh, three-part interview. It's like I don't know anything about this at all. I it's hope, all good. Uh, that didn't sound scripted. But anyway. <laughs> it's all natural. Yeah, yeah, totally natural, organic intros, guys. So the thing that, you know, now that I've said that I don't know who our interview is with or, you know, how long it is, the, the thing that I think, you know, undercuts that is me, like, telling the stuff that I really enjoyed about this um, this first part. And, and it's two words, fearlessness and hunger. So, I, you know, I don't want to undercut, you know, what's actually, you know, going on there. But I want people to listen for those words, fearlessness and hunger. Oh, man. I guess I'm going to give away more than John does here. I'm going to say listen for the breadth of experience that Andy talks about in this episode in different roles across different industries in the tech industry. I think that was really interesting. You'll find even a move to management. We'll see how that went, right? And I want you to listen super carefully to the very end about how Andy makes career decisions and what he does before he says yes. Can't wait to listen again. All right. Um, without further ado, let's get on to episode 158, part one of three with Andy Search. Andy Sirwich, thanks for joining us on the Nerd Journey. Uh, can you tell us who you are and what your day job is? Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. So yeah, again, my name is Andy Sirwich, and uh, I am a technical evangelist for uh, Altero Software, who is part of the Hornet Security Group. So um, that merger kind of happened back at the beginning of 2021. So Hornet Security and Altero, when you see my name around the net, you see one of those two names. They're kind of interchangeable at this point. But Hornet Security is the larger brand that is the the master brand right so probably a longer answer than you were looking for there but there it is well it makes <laughs> sense because i wondered why i saw the hornet security thing and i thought i thought he worked for altero yep. okay <laughs> it makes sense yeah so altero was acquired by hornet security at the beginning of 2021 so hornet security being a you know, email security m365 security company they brought altero in for the backup components of that equation does that mean your evangelist responsibilities have expanded into a larger suite of products or is it still the same focus? 
Absolutely. So um, I can still talk about the backup stuff day in and day out, backwards and forwards, right? But uh, definitely, like you said, the responsibility area has expanded, right? So that includes email security now and uh, M365 security um, because the company focuses on M365 as a you know a, a primary platform. Um, so yeah, definitely. That's really interesting. I I was wondering maybe if we could back up. Um, how did you actually get started in the industry? Like what, what kind of drew you? Was it, you know, when you were a kid, um, you know, out of college, out of high school, where did that happen? I, I kind of got my start how I, at least how I imagine many IT pros got their start. You know, growing up, they were interested in, at least for me, it was, I had a lot of interest in computer games. So I had a, a 486 was my first computer and I couldn't even tell you how old I was, eight, nine. Um, and I was able to, to figure out enough of it to, you know, okay, this is how I shut down windows 3.1. And now I can, now I'm in DOS, right. And I can run, you know, Disney coaster or, uh, space quest two. I forget what the other big DOS games I had at the time. It was space quest was one of my favorites. I had, uh, King's quest two as well, but anyway, you know, so I kind of started back then tinkering around, figuring out how to run these games. Um, I was never in a situation where. You know, had to borrow memory from here to allocate it over here. I was never in one of those situations, thankfully, but tinkered enough back then to get really interested in computers. And fast forward to high school, you know, I took every tech class that was available at my small little high school in rural Michigan. But, you know, I was tearing apart computers in tech class, um, building my own custom builds at home. I think my first official build that I did myself was... You guys remember when the, uh, the AMD Athlon 64s came out and like they used it as this big marketing mechanism, right? Oh, now 64 bit. And of course we all thought it was awesome, but really, you know, I mean, knowing what I know now, it's like, wait a second, there probably wasn't even any 64 bit application that was utilizing it back then. Right. But, you know, I thought I was all big and cool when I was that age and had my own gaming computer that had the, you know, Athlon 64 on the front. Anyway, <laughs> segue. But yeah, so, you know, after that, it kind of grew into this, hey, I'm actually pretty good at this whole tech thing and um, ended up going to, what was it? I think my junior year of high school, I ended up working for the high school I was going to for the summer um, doing my first IT job. Really, it was just desktop administration, uh, refreshing labs, that type of stuff. I think the first big project I worked on there was uh, the Windows 98 to 98 SE upgrade across several computer labs. So um, that's kind of how I got started. Yeah, desktop support. That's that's the way a lot of folks get into the industry. That It is. That help desk area that puts you basically the front line to end users. Yep. That is, that is um, you know, one of two patterns we've seen, you know, desktop support. And the other is, oddly enough, high school teacher. Like uh, <laughs> those those are the two patterns. In this case, high school tech support, right? <laughs> it was, yep. And I'll tell you, it's I I can't describe how what's the word I want to use? Interesting, unique it was to provide desktop support for teachers who would be my teachers the next year and or were my teachers the previous year. So that was something of a unique experience. <laughs> Hopefully they looked at you as a trustworthy fellow. They did. Most most did. I I had a fairly um, good reputation in, in high school, I'll say. So I, I didn't really run into a lot of problems there, thankfully. You mentioned, um, you know, being 
in a classroom in a lab where you were tearing apart computers and building new ones. Is that something uh, I, I wonder if you just have an opinion on this? You know, a lot of times people become successful because they have lost the fear of breaking something and people are inhibited from becoming more familiar with technology because they're fearful of breaking something. So I, I was just wondering if you had a, a strong opinion on that. So a strong opinion on whether a fear of breaking stuff is a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, whether that inhibits understanding and whether, you know, losing that fear can uh, help you progress. Gotcha. I think I'm of two minds of this. And there was a career event that contributes to my split decision on this. So I would say back then, when I was in high school, tearing stuff apart, upgrading labs, I would say I had very little fear of breaking stuff. I always had a high degree of faith in myself that I could resolve any issue that I could create. Fast forward to, let's see, this would be my first year after high school. I went to work full-time, basically, for that same high school. That was my first full-time IT job. And it was a situation that I was able to fix and resolve myself. But what ended up happening was, I don't even remember how it came about or how I did it. I somehow nuked an entire application share off of the file server. Now, this was like the worst application share that you could get rid of. I mean, we're talking district financials, student grade databases. Um, I mean, like, like full on panic mode. So I was, so this school district was pretty spread out over 25, 30 miles. I'm at like one of the remote sites. So I call my boss and I'm like, Hey, can you, uh, you take a look at the S drive real quick? And he's just like, it's all gone. (laughs) It's so, I'm like, yeah, I'll be right there and I'll I'll recover it from the from the backups. And so I drove all the way back, and this is in the days of tape backups, right? So we we were running, I think, Veritas at the time. It was backup exec. The what was it? The first time <laughs> Veritas owned backup exec. Yeah, I remember backup exec. And I'm sitting there praying at the tape machine as it's recovering the data, and thankfully everything was recovered, no harm, no foul. But that was one of those career learning events where it's like, hey, I need to really think twice when I'm doing anything that could affect data in any way, shape, or form. And, well, I actually think about things three or maybe four times before I do anything like that uh, these days. So that was, that was, I would say, a positive learning event. At the time, it was potentially catastrophic, but I would say that there's benefits of both sides of that, right? I mean, I think there was some benefits in the early, early days of my career of not being afraid to break things because it allowed me to really dive in and get my hands on a lot of stuff that some people might have been afraid of. But once you get to a certain level, I really feel that you need to develop a healthy respect for the data, especially, right? And I don't know, you become a more seasoned IT pro, in my opinion, um, when you run into a situation like that. I guess when you have a smaller blast radius then right. tinkering becomes is maybe okay and and fear is uh uh something that that might inhibit you but as soon as you have that large blast radius then <laughs> right. it's funny you mentioned that i mean you think about how it has changed over the years i mean back then it was a 
you know, it was an application share. Now we have certain IT pros in the, the field today that the blast radius, as you say, is the U.S. West Coast or the U.S. East Coast, if we're talking about a major cloud provider, right? So, so yeah, definitely. I, I like that description. If the packets don't get there, it doesn't matter. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's uh, You also start to change, change how you sell, uh, shop for uh, backup software. You're like, oh, it has a backup in the name, but really I want recovery in the name also. You know, that's that's the funny thing. I, I talk about with with prospects all the time, have that conversation of like, hey, backup is the easy part, right? Recovery is like what you guys really want and when you want it, right? <laughs> What's extremely interesting is it sounds like you learned that lesson at an extremely early point in your career. And I'm just curious if that eventually drove you to get into the the industry you're in now, like that that market. Maybe uh, I wouldn't say directly. It certainly helped because I had, uh, like I said, you develop a really healthy respect for data in, the, in that situation. I'm trying to think of what age I was when that happened. I had to have been, uh, it was like, like I said, the year after high school, I had to have been 19 when that happened. <laughs> 19. So I mean, fairly young. And honestly, for a kid going into IT, that was a good age to get that lesson out of the way early, right? <laughs> yeah, you have to learn some of those just by messing it up. There's yep. really no other way to to feel the fear. Definitely. Worry. Yep. How long did you stay at that role? Um, that role I was probably there for two years. So I say full time. I was full time contracted, so forty hours a week on a a contractor basis. So I kind of also started doing some, I don't know, people would call it beer money work today, right? I wasn't old enough to drink then, obviously. But that's what I'm going to call it, just to describe it as this, you know, little odd jobs here and there. Um, I did some work for a, a different school system. I don't know, it was like a 10-minute drive north of where I live. So a different school district in the area. I did some work for them on and off. Um, there was also a uh, manufacturer where I had a couple of buddies working on the manufacturing lines there that they knew the guys in IT and through those connections I was able to get in there to start contracting for them which would ultimately lead to my next official IT role was working for a fortune what are they I think they're fortune 100 manufacturer fairly large organization so that so going from small K through 12 education IT to you know huge corporate um, you're just a tiny cog in the machine. Corporate IT um, was quite a jump. How about that difference in user base? Because at a high school, you know, you're supporting students and teachers, right? Teachers that yep. are inputting grades and other things. In a manufacturing company, it may be that the ERP system went down. It may be that this machine can't pull programs from the network. This person can't clock in and track their time. Oh yeah, that, that somebody can't cut checks for the whole company. It's it's intense. It is. It is. Yeah. Thankfully, from a I guess from a career trajectory point of view, I'm thankful that it was just for what I would call a branch site. So I was not part of the larger team that was responsible for IT for the entire organization. I was on a team responsible for a single plant. So in terms of users. Four, five, six hundred users, probably, um, and then we answer to the larger corporate IT team. So, I mean, at the time, sure, I would have liked to be part of the larger corporate team, right? But 
kind of thankful now. <laughs> again, my I'm older and wiser now. Kind of thankful that again we go back to the blast radius discussion. <laughs> um, not that I made I didn't make any mistakes like that there, thankfully. But um, but it was a smaller user base. But still, it was a good introduction to that world of corporate IT culture, budgets. You know, just corporate culture, right? Quite a change from where I came from. Is part of that like having governance overhead, like from a central authority saying, oh, you have to do things this way? Um, or was it a little bit more autonomous as long as you met like a certain, you know, just criteria? We were really lucky in that it was it was pretty autonomous as long as we met, like you said, certain criteria. Um, I think really the only big kind of centralized thing was licensing, right? Because the larger IT organization at the time, they get better pricing, better pricing through bulk ordering, right? For the entire organization. So I think that was the one big sticking block with corporate IT. Yeah, I mean, we even ran our own in-house exchange server at the time, Exchange 5.5. Yay. <laughs> the information store on that thing was always going down. But hey, that was Exchange 5.5, right? <laughs> but uh, But yeah. I think that was the only the only sticking point with corporate IT, thankfully. Did that mean that um, you could make your own decisions about software to buy and how things were organized? Or was that like was just not only the buying centralized, but also the decision on what to buy was centralized? I would say that it was kind of a mix of both. Yeah, there might be some larger corporate initiatives where they're like, I seem to remember there was one project where, hey, we don't want any workstations in the entire fleet that are older than five years, right? Like there was something along those lines that was driven from the top down and the money came from the top down. But there were other conversations where we as a local team would make the decision saying, hey, this is what our this is the budget that corporate has given us for the year. Um, hey, we need two new physical servers for, you know, A and B, whatever, right? Um, and we make that decision locally, and there was very little input from corporate IT in that situation. Here's a question, Andy. In that model, moving into the manufacturing IT space, did you find computer literacy in general to be an issue at all? And the reason I ask that question is what I have seen is that someone may be an excellent operator of a particular machine, but they may not be extremely skilled in using different programs on a workstation out in the shop for different things like clicking through the ERP system for timekeeping. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would definitely agree with that of like your shop floor operators, the people that are actually operating the machinery and and like you said, they're very talented at oh, operating yeah. that machinery. There are machines out on that shop floor that even today I still don't know what they were doing, right? They were building something. But I don't know what they were doing. Yeah, I would definitely say there was a kind of a, a tech literacy issue. They knew how to do the basics, log in, track their time, open up the application that ran whatever machine they were working on that day, and away they went. Yep, and that was about it. What I'm getting at here is I, I think that that early in your career, there was an element of education that you had to provide others that yep. isn't that different maybe than what you do now. As part of your evangelist role. That's a good point. That's a it's an interesting op observation. I've never made that observation myself before, but that's that's very true. Yeah, I would agree with that. But I'm also a former high school math teacher, so. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I totally agree with that because I was always one of the first on the team to be like, oh, hey, Bob over on line 
A is having issues with his email. Okay, I'll go over and fix the issue for Bob and show him how to fix the issue the next time he has it, you know? Um, you know, the goal there obviously was to eliminate repeat calls into the help desk, but um, but also I kind of liked teaching folks like Bob how to fix issues. So it's always kind of been a passion of mine. Yeah, that is an interesting thing to to see like early on in in our careers, like what what piques our interest, you know, the kind of formative things. Like I, I, I certainly wouldn't, be, you know, like it, it's kind of a blunt thing to say, oh, you had this like, you know, backup and recovery issue earlier on. And then you also like to teach people. So now you're teaching people about backup and recovery. Like that's too blunt. Right. But it, I think over time, it seems like we do learn what it is that we like, you know, the things that we're good at. And then we t tend to like drift in those directions. Right. Not a question, just an observation. It's a John White special. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Welcome to the nerd journey where I just comment and don't ask a question. <laughs> I suppose at the the end I could say, well, what do you think about that? But that's that, I feel like that's rude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how long did that uh, did that gig last? I think I was there. Yeah, I think that was about two years as well. Yep, because this would have been 2005 going into 2007 ish time frame. I don't know if for people so. This manufacturer I was working with was in the automotive supply chain, right? So they were building parts for um, shipping trucks, basically, right? So automotive supplier. And I don't know if people remember 2007. Maybe not everyone's old enough to remember what happened in 2007. But the auto industry really started struggling in 2007, right? You guys remember that? Oh, I feel like... Everybody started struggling right around 2007, <laughs> 2008. Yep, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> that was a peak, the um, housing bubble bursting, basically. Yep. So there yep. was like a lot of expansion of a lot of industries based on, you know, exuberance, you know, thinking that, you know, there's all this money sloshing around because people thought they had all this value locked up in their homes and they were spending it. And then all of a right. sudden, you know, people like collectively realized and were faced with the idea that they didn't have as much money as they thought and spending just kind of cratered which means that you know everybody supporting spending like supply chains you know yep. kind of uh took a bath yeah definitely they uh so the, the company i was working for working for started to struggle and even though kind of again like my first job i was 40 hours a week i was contracted 40 hours a week and so I was just a line item at the bottom of somebody's Excel sheet, right? And, oh, hey. With little to no benefits, right? Right, exactly. And so, hey, we need to tighten down the, the you know, tighten the, the belts and <laughs> get the bootstraps ready, right? And, so, oh, hey, Andy, uh, next Friday is going to be your last day with us. So, yeah, have fun with that. <laughs> so that, that happened in, in 2007. Ouch. It is what it is, right? And... Yeah, obviously there is a, I, I remember reading that email and anybody who's gone through this, um, I'm sure has had a similar experience, right? And your stomach just, it feels like the earth just falls out from underneath you, right? And thankfully at the time I had, you know, I just had a wife, right? I didn't have a kid or or, or anybody else to, to worry about, right? It just was me and the wife at the time. So, um, but still there's a very real fear of like holy crap like okay what am i gonna do now um so i just started 
applying for whatever looked like I'd be a fit for um, in the IT space, obviously, or staying in the IT space. And I ended up at um, a, uh, a, a managed service provider is where I ultimately ended up. And that was um, the first job where I was, you know, getting paid under W-2. I wasn't a contractor anymore, so I was actually part of the organization. Nice. Um, but I I was there for darn near 10 years in various roles. Um, I started as a systems engineer level one. So that manufactured ma- manufacturing job was kind of the the job I had where I really transitioned from desktop support into kind of starting to dabble in more server-related stuff like Active Directory. I did some stuff with uh, SharePoint, uh, what was it, Portal Server 2007 back then. I mentioned Exchange earlier, so I got my hands dirty with Exchange for the first time at that job. But this managed service provider where I went to work for is really kind of where, I guess I would say my skill set kind of really broadened at that point in time. If you've ever worked for a service provider, you you touch a lot of different stuff with a lot of different size organizations. And I I learned a lot at that job, which I'm sure we'll probably get into here. So I don't want to I don't want to drive away too fast here on the on the questions. No, no, I, I that, that's an interesting observation. I, I'm kind of wondering, though, one of the things you said earlier on in that comment was it was the first W two job you had. Did did you have a a preference at that point? Were you like strongly looking for more of a direct employment? Uh, type of position as opposed to another contract position uh, because of of the the way the one ended or or not at that stage in my life w2 was definitely preferable you know so my my wife and i were recently married you know we were at a stage where it's like okay we could really use health insurance of some sort right um so here was this job offer with health insurance benefits. And that, that definitely was a preferable offer. I think early in my career, the flexibility um, of, of having those more contracted type engagements were, were really helpful. And it allowed me to do a couple of odd jobs here and there for different organizations. Um, but yeah, at that stage in my career, definitely the, the, the W-2 route was the preferred route. Here's a question, Andy. I want to turn it back just a tad to the the getting made redundant part. Did Yep. How long was the period between when you were told that news and you got the new position? Was it a short time or? It was not as long as I was expecting. Okay. I don't remember exactly, but it was not as long as I was expecting. I want to say it couldn't have been more than six weeks. Um, so I was, my my direct report graciously gave me a two-week heads up, right? Which I'm not sure many direct reports would do that, you know, sure. given somebody who has domain admin access to um, <laughs> your section of the corporate IT infrastructure. But he trusted me and we had a good rapport. So I, I was very thankful for that two week heads up. So, I mean, I had a two week period where I was still getting paid, where I was really hitting the concrete hard trying to find, you know, figure out what's next. Right. Um, but I yeah, I don't think it was any more than six weeks. It was it was actually pretty quick. Sometimes when stuff like that happens, I've heard it really shakes the confidence. Like, because somebody, it makes people think that they're not good enough because they were let go. You know, you you had a good perspective on it. I'm just a line item on a balance sheet. Uh, did, did any of that baggage end up affecting your performance in the next job, even though you moved quickly? Just curious. 
No, I don't. I don't think I ran into that issue at that point in time. I um, I think I was more concerned with like, hey, how am I going to pay rent? How am I going to, sure. you know, how am I going to live right? And I wasn't so. I I said to myself, hey, these are the skills I have. This is what I'm good at. I was very confident at the stuff I could do. I just needed to find somebody who wanted to pay me to do it, right? Of and course. that's that's that was my my big focus at the time. I don't recall there being a time where I was really worried or anxious about what was I, I mean obviously there there is some fear there right but i don't remember being i don't remember it being the focal point i guess is what i'm getting at okay how quickly did you get that um, perspective about you just being a line item on somebody's excel spreadsheet as opposed to you know ooh, this is like a personal personal thing oh i think it was almost instant and i think i think it's because of the way my direct report kind of so I heard about it via email first. So I'm sitting there in my, my cube reading the email, right? And instantly I'm like, after the proverbial <laughs> nuclear bomb had gone off in my in my brain, walked into the boss's office and I said, okay, you know, like, is there anything we can do about this? And he was very open about the fact that, hey, our budgets are getting slashed left and right. I was the low man on the totem pole as far as that local IT organization went at that facility. Every department was being asked to to tighten. I don't remember what it was. I think it was something to the tune of 20, 30%. I mean, it was, it was pretty extreme. Wow. <laughs> it was pretty man. extreme. Wow. So, you know, hearing that there was not a lot of, I, I didn't have the sense that, Hey, it was me. It was very like, Hey, there was this, some external thing that happened beyond my control it sucks but it is what it is right did you get a good reference out of it i did thankfully and and apparently it worked for me because yeah like i said it was only like a couple you know six weeks or so between uh, between jobs so i lucked out there well that helps too right both those things yep getting getting the reference and uh and then seeing your worth in the marketplace almost immediately can really bolster that confidence as opposed to you know i know it's like depending on the the market you know people just don't get you know answers back for you know hundreds of jobs that they applied right. for you know right. for months and months and months and 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 neither of those is necessarily reflective on you know the the individual like you know I, i've known people who said hey you know i've been able to find anything for for six months and and then i take a look at their their resume that they send out and i'm like oh you just have this formatted incorrectly you know it's like you know just the yeah the the simple things you know like yeah oh you need to you need to put your like your best skills you know on you know the top half of page one not on page three (laughs) right exactly things like that you know and uh you know but honestly you know none of us tends to be an expert at finding another job right it's you know we hope to not be experts at that Exactly. And it's, it's definitely not easy, but somehow made it work at that point in time. That's for sure. Nice. I mean, unless you become like a serial contractor, right? Where you are literally working on like, okay, I have like a 180 day contract and in the middle, I need to line up the next contract. You know, that those are the people that become like true experts at job hunting. Right. You know, that takes a special mindset, I think. It does. And that's almost a special skill too, right? Because I mean, you're almost in the business of sales in that situation as well as whatever your trade is because, hey, 
you know, I need to go convince somebody else that my skills are worth buying so I have something to walk into. But yeah, definitely. This takes a unique skill set and mindset for that. I feel like David Klee has would have some thoughts on that. Oh, that's interesting. Can you expand on that? Yeah, remember we had David Klee on and he talked about starting his own business and he yep. goes and works for different companies for different stints of time working on full stack problems but mainly around database performance issues for different applications so you know he's got to convince people that it's worth spending money on him to do something or his company right and then right. he's in there for a specific amount of time but there may be an interested party somewhere else that that has to be spoken to it's a different it's at a different point in the pipeline right each conversation right the pre-sales post-sales dance that that just that's what it made me think of i definitely i think the thing that it triggered in my mind was that once you know i was in technical sales that i looked at my resume and job hunting in a much much different way you know right because i had been involved in selling technical products you know including you know professional services to to complete something then you know, it was almost like this change of uh, mindset where I was saying, oh, I need to sell this resume right. to somebody, you know, for to the recruiter to get, you know, to the next interview and to, you know, sell myself to the interviewer to get to the, you know, the hiring manager or, you know, whatever the process is. But not everybody has that experience and not everybody is in, you know, that kind of role. So yeah. um, it, it's just we don't get that experience, you know. And it's definitely quite a shift. I mean, even if you've done technical pre-sales, right? I mean, it's one thing to sell a technical solution that solves some problem, right? But, and, and you know, I've got, a, I've got a quote, Don Jones here. I, I listened to your guys' Don Jones episode a couple of weeks back. And I mean, he, he, says it he says it perfectly in that, you know, you have to know what problem you solve, right? I totally agree with Don when he says stuff like that. You have to know what problem you solve. And get good at, you know, convincing people about that, right? And for those playing along at home, that's episodes 137 and 138 for reference. Good episodes, by the way. Nice. So I do want to get back to this idea of, you know, being in an MSP and having multiple at-bats, right? Lots yeah. of different types of experiences, lots of different sizes of companies, lots of different types of problems. Can you expand on that a little bit and how it like kind of uh, changed your career? Working for an MSP is kind of a mixed bag, right? I mean, MSPs have a reputation of, you know, let's get as much done as we can with as few engineers as we possibly can, right? There's kind of that reputation that that industry has. But the flip side is, is you're going to learn more about general IT than you may have ever wanted to know. So you know, I think back to when I stepped into that that MSP role, started at the particular branch that I was at, um, we were supporting a lot of nonprofits at the time. So, I mean, we're talking about organizations of varying size. I think we had one that was two, three hundred um, heads. Another one that was, um, you know, like a like 80, 90 heads. So different, different size nonprofits, shoestring budgets. Um, but it was rewarding in that, hey, let's 
get them as, I'm going to use a, a modern term here, let's get them as digitally transformed as we can with the budget that they have. But it was also, I think, the first time in my career where I really had the sense of the work that I was doing on their systems, keeping them running, was allowing them to go on and do the good work that they do, serve the communities that they serve, right? So that was one of the first times in my career where I really saw that, hey, while my impacts, while my, my, I don't want to say chores, but the tasks that I'm doing to keep, I don't know, I'm, again, I'm going to pick on Bob. Bob in accounting, the jobs I'm doing to keep Bob in the accounting up and running um, is having a direct impact on people's lives in the community, right? So that was kind of a unique experience when I first started for that MSP. As I go on down the line throughout the years, uh, my time with that MSP started getting involved in different sectors of that business. So I moved on from a systems engineer to, at the time, what was called virtual systems administrator, so VSA. So basically what that position was, the second role I was at there, basically what that position was, was I would get assigned organizations that were large enough to where they could see benefit from having their own system admin but we're not so large that they should hire their their own, right? So I was the kind of the stand-in virtual systems administrator for 15, 20 different customers. And uh, these were, so after I made this move, I moved to a different geography. So from kind of central Michigan down to the Grand Rapids area where I'm, I'm at now. Um, so I moved down here to the, the corporate office of the MSP at the time and really started serving kind of a broader customer base at that point. So it included local government, some more K through 12 education, manufacturing, a couple of service organizations, a lot of lawyers for some reason, a lot of law offices. Um, now that I think about that, but yeah, kind of a, a very broad array of different customers where I would actually help advise and help make those system admin type decisions for those customers, right? And was this a lot of primarily remote work or were you actually making site visits to the different customers? If I had to put a ratio to it, I I guess I would say it's about 50-50. It was a pretty even split. Um, thankfully, all these customers were, rem they were local to the area I was in. So I think the longest I would ever drive would be an hour, maybe two on a given day. Um, so yeah, it was it was really a combination. Um, but at the end of the day, the goal was was to be able to support all of these customers remotely because from an MSP perspective, that was the most cost-effective way of doing it, right? Of course. You didn't really have to do much travel in your work before that with the automotive manufacturer and the the high school that you worked no, for, not, right? No, not at all. Not at all. Only The only time I would have to do any travel would be like if it was after hours and I was on call and, you know, hey, there's a fire, come fix it, right? Uh, I'm not sure I would I would count that as travel, right? But well, right, but it's something new to get used to. You know, if you're not used to that, I need to spend four hours on the road this week. It's it's something that takes a little bit of an adjustment. It does definitely. Can you tell me a little bit about the progression? Like at that MSP, did they actively promote like learning and development in the career, or were they? Did it take something special for you to like, you know, kind of extracurricularly have to go and, and ask about, you know, how to expand your skills and, and do like the next job? Yeah, I, 
this was the phase in my career where I guess I would say I was really hungry, right? Like I wanted to go, you know, learn about this and learn about that and work on this for that customer. This is the the phase in my career where I learned, you know, about virtualization, SANS, you know, fiber channel networks, iSCSI networks, you know, all that larger infrastructure stuff. And, you know, I'd see an EMC SAN, you know, a rack, a rack, large EMC SAN sitting over there. Hey, I want to learn about that thing, right? How does that work? How do I carve off storage from it? You know, that was the phase of my career where I was hungry. I wanted to learn stuff. And, you know, I would, I would shadow other engineers quite frequently, (laughs) whether they wanted me to or not. And just kind of look over their shoulder like, hey, Tim, what you working on there? That looks cool. You know, hey, what's that dial? What's that button do? You know, and just kind of drive people crazy. But in the end, you know, I think people liked it. And um, the powers that be, they saw that I was hungry and gave me opportunities to advance. And I think the one thing looking back at my time at MSP, anytime I was promoted or moved up into a higher position, it was always a direct result of me kind of pushing either to learn more or um, actively pushing and trying to advocate for myself a little bit within the management structure of, of the business. And it made your blast radius even larger. It, working it did. with all those customers. It did, because by the by the end of my time with that uh, the MSP, I was the um, senior cloud systems administrator. So this MSP had their own data well, data centers, multiple. And really what it was was a, a really large vSphere deployment that they marketed as their private cloud. <laughs> yep. And um, basically they would host RDS farms for customers on there if people needed, you know, remote file servers. I mean, basically whatever businesses needed and didn't want to host themselves, we were hosting inside of this highly redundant, large vSphere environment. And that was my baby during the last two years of my time there. So again, Going back to the term blast radius, very large blast radius there because I think when I left, boy, there were 40, 50 different customers running on this cluster. So, and and it wasn't just the, the nodes themselves, right? It was the fiber channel network that sat behind it. It was the associated SANs that were on that network. It was all of the network interconnectivity, the VLANing, everything in between, right? To keep those customers all separated from each other but also able to access their data in the way that they needed to access their data, right? Am, am I um, accurate in saying that you were kind of pushing um, to expand your knowledge base as opposed to expand like the title or position that you had, or was it a little bit of both? It's a good question. Um, I think if I'm really honest with myself, I would say it was, it was just more about learning stuff at the time. I mean, obviously the titles and, the associated pay raise that would come along with that was always was always nice. You know, I was I was kind of always pushing from a you know a husband and a father perspective too. Like you know, hey, I got this family I got to take care of. You know, what can I do to to do better for them? Right. So that was kind of a big driving factor as well. Which you know, obviously the is the the money side of the equation, right? The provider side of that equation that was a, a driving factor as well. Now, at one point. Isn't this the place where you ended up having a small stint as a manager? So I did. So this was, I'm trying to think of how long this was. It was about a year. I remember that from the talk you gave at Amp Navigator this year. So I, I want to hear about that as well. Yeah, definitely. So so yeah, this was, 
trying to think of what year this was. I guess it doesn't matter. But yeah, I I was at finally at a stage of my career after all this time where I had decided that, you know what, the 2 a.m. phone call that everything's broken, come fix it now. I'm getting real sick of that. I was getting sick of being the guy in the trench, turning the knobs, pressing the buttons, running the scripts. You know, I had I already made the decision that I'm done with what I'm doing now. I was looking for what the next thing was. And I had, at that time, I'd already become aware of Microsoft's, what used to be called their tech evangelism team. And I remember seeing a a webinar of some sort with uh, Simon Perriman, which I'm sure I'll mention Simon again at, at some point. He was a technical evangelist for Microsoft at the time. And sitting there watching, I'm like, you know, I do this with our engineering team on almost a weekly basis. I would usually come up with some topic and teach our engineering team something um, at that MSP, teach them, you know, some new technology or, hey, we should be doing things this way because of A, B, and C. I'm like, it'd be really cool to do that as a job or um, something where I'm evangelizing solutions that solve problems for people, right? So I actually pitched that idea to the MSP and, you know, they didn't see a lot of value in that from at least a marketing perspective, or I think their larger concern was, hey, we're taking this billable employee who can bill his time to customers, and then you're saying we're going to pull him out of billable and he's not generating billable labor anymore. I think that's really what the what the problem was. Again, this is me older and wiser and, and more MSP experience all these years later. I can kind of look back and be like, oh yeah, that, that makes all kinds of sense, right? It's all about direct labor, just like in manufacturing. <laughs> right. So I think that's 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 why that, that decision was made. And I think they didn't wanna they didn't want to lose me at the time. So they said, hey, you'd be a really good team lead, right? And so they they said, Hey, here's our our NetOps team. You're the team lead now. I'm like, hmm, okay. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> so that's kind of how I ended up in that position. And I did that for, oh, probably had to be almost a year before I, I moved on to the next job after that. How is that team lead role different from what you thought it was going to be? You know, I think, I think the hardest thing for me, and people talk about this all the time, is you're not the buddy-buddy coworker anymore, right? You're not the... You're not the coworker that, you know, your friend gripes or complains to, says, oh, hey, I have to go out here and fix this thing. Now you're the person that's asking them to, hey, I know it's five o'clock, but yeah, this one place, their switch blew up and they, you know, are still working second and third shift. And I need you to go out and take care of that, (laughs) you know, so it changes things, right? So that I think that was an adjustment for me was having to be the guy that was asking people to stay after and do extra. I always made sure to make it up for him on the back end, like, hey, you know, just come in three hours late tomorrow or whatever, right? To to make it fair, um, because I had been in their shoes many, many times before. But I think that was the hardest thing for me was, you know, now I have to take these people who were coworkers, you know, good coworkers, and now I'm you know, now I'm the man, right? <laughs> and were you a technical backstop or was it more like I am quarterbacking to make sure we have resources to put all the fires out? That was both, really. It was okay. both. Yep. Yep. Thankfully, this team was five, six people 
So, I mean, it wasn't a huge team. Um, so, you know, just making sure resources were, were available was, was fairly easy under most situations, but, but yeah. It's just another pattern and, you know, hopefully it's not awkward for me to just make this observation again, instead of asking a question, but career progression, even as an individual contributor or, you know, moving into a management role typically involves increasing your blast radius, right? Yep. It means... You know, you went from, oh, hey, you know, your virtual system administrator job was 15 companies and that and that was progress, right? That wasn't where you started. But then at the end, you were covering 50, right? So in your individual contributor role, uh, that path, it was your your expertise went from hey, I'm answering your questions to being totally responsible top to bottom of the entire infrastructure stack for even more customers. It's just an interesting pattern that we've come across. And, you know, if people are out there, you know, trying to make, you know, career progress, you know, that's an observation that you should pay attention to. It's, you know, if you want to increase your pay and, and better your title, the question is like, what more responsibility are you taking on? Like what bigger stage can you step into um and sometimes that right. means managing a team of people but sometimes it just means like taking on more responsibility and you know bigger top to bottom stack you know wherever it is that you are that's that's a really interesting observation and I totally agree with everything you said and i you know it makes me think of something just kind of again looking at my own career progression every time where I knew and understood I was taking on more responsibility. Like, hey, I'm in charge and, and responsible for this larger thing now, right? I I always was aware of that. And in my opinion, I, I always kind of made a healthy decision in being like, yeah, okay, I'm good with that. I understand what I'm taking on and I'm okay with it. And I think that goes back again to my you know application share <laughs> explosion back at my first IT job. I Again, having something like that happen kind of teaches you that, you know, in IT, there are consequences to certain things and stuff does break in the real world, right? So I, um, again, you mentioning that just kind of makes me think of the two kind of interrelated, interrelated right? That That's really insightful. So uh, again, maybe you can correct me if I'm hearing this incorrectly, but it sounds like what you're saying is as you took on additional responsibility, you had to make that a conscious decision um, recognizing that if you were taking on and you know additional responsibility and you didn't have the systems in place to handle you know the 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 larger stage and the and the larger blast radius, the chances that you made a mistake that had like significant consequences were going to be you know increasing. I'm not you know yep. It, so you really kind of need to put those systems in place like to, to manage your time and attention and, and make sure you're not making mistakes. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, again, coming back to that, uh, you know, that large vSphere infrastructure I was talking about. I mean, everybody talks about N plus one for me, it was N plus two. Like if I didn't have N plus two, like I was sweating, you know, like N plus one is not enough <laughs> for me anyway. That goes back to blast radius. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yep.
tough to cut it off right there, but really great stuff. Uh, you know, I'm looking forward to next week when we hear a little bit more about that that MSP move and and maybe away from the MSP move. Although, you know, I have to say, listening back, you know, I'm gonna say it again. It's that fearlessness. And if people like remember me talking about that at the top in the intro, for me it was hearing Andy talking about that fearless, like, uh, you know, breaking apart computers, you know, tearing them apart or taking them apart and putting them back together. And, you know, I, I'm just wondering if other people out there have felt that pattern that I, that I perceived in that, uh, hearing about that story. And that's that idea that like one of the reasons why you personally might have advanced is that you didn't have the fear of breaking things irreparably, like while you were poking around trying to learn about it. And, you know, I've definitely seen people have that fear, right? Just with something as simple as like the user interface for a new phone, you know, like, ah, I don't want to, don't want to mess it up, don't want to break it, you know, and so I'm afraid to like, you know, press a button or, you know, click, touch the screen and swipe and pinch and zoom and, uh, you know, just because things like might break. I, I don't know if, if you've experienced this or you felt like you've experienced this, would definitely like to hear back from you. So, you know, tweet at us at Nerd Journey or at me, you know, at B Journeyman. Would love to hear from you about that. I think it's the difference between a crippling fear and a healthy, respectful fear. Yes. If I have a, if yes. I have a healthy, respectful fear for what I'm doing, making a big change in a data center, okay, there's a possibility of something going wrong, but I feel okay with being able to figure that out if something does and I have a plan for, for when it does. Right, right. And that's the like knowledge of the potential impacts of the thing that you're playing around with mm -hmm. right and making like big changes on like massive production systems like there's a healthy amount of fear that you should have because of the potential you know impact and blast radius of, of a mistake there right and you know as opposed to hey there's some old junk or computers like do you want to you know poke around inside and, and see what makes them tick and take them apart and move one hard drive to the other computer and turn it back on and see what happens. Like those are the kinds of things that are low blast radius, like small blast radius, like the impact is really small, but you get practice trying to like see like what happens when something happens, you know, so playing around on non-production systems, you know, when you lose the fear of that and, and if you're in a DevOps environment, the ability to like kind of just boom, reset the whole thing, you know, redeploy your entire test environment from code, you know, through a, you know, CLI or, you know, a, a user interface, like, doesn't matter which. The fact that, oh, I can break this thing in the lab, see exactly what happens when I break it this way, try to fix it if I can't, you know, reset it and, and start over again. Anyway, like that and the, I would say the thing at the very end or towards the end where, where Andy was talking about how advancement implies that like increase in responsibility, like increase in the, the area of effectiveness you are, or again, you know, just the increase in blast radius, right? Like those, so those are the things that I kind of took away from the episode and, and the hunger, hunger for advancement. You lose yeah. that hunger, you stop moving forward. 
When I think about Blast Radius, John, I think back to episode 76 where Josh Fidel called it your sphere of responsibility. Very similar there. That's a good way he described it. And that move to management, uh, I thought it was interesting that he became the team lead, went into management. Didn't really seem like that was super interesting to him at the time. It reminded me of Ethan Banks in episode 42 where he thought he wanted to be a manager but hated it. Yeah, every time we hear that type of story, I always think of Ethan Banks. Always. Sure. And that story, him telling that exact experience. And I always like the stories of people gracefully exiting an organization. Imagine being told, you're, this is it, you have two weeks left. That's exactly what happened to Andy. He had the keys to the kingdom, so to speak, from a credential right. standpoint. In the technology environment, they didn't cut him off early. They gave him the full two weeks. He got a recommendation. And I, I like the fact that he wasn't crippled by fear. Right. He was able to put the a little bit of fear toward motivating himself to go and find the next thing because he knew that people were depending on him to do that. But again, not that crippling fear. It's that, that healthy right. balance. Yeah, great episode. I, I Again, I'm really looking forward to next week's episode where um, we hear the next chapter in that story and what happened next to Andy. But uh, anything else before we get out of here? No, sir. Just listen for next week, ladies and gentlemen. I'm excited. It's going to be good. Part two. Just a reminder again, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at NerdJourney. All right. Farewell, listeners, and tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White, at Journeyman for Nick Cordy, at Network Nerd underscore, signing off. Adios. Adios.